Amen. Church family, join me in Matthew chapter 6, if you would, this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where we're going to camp out together this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, as we are right in the middle of this model prayer. We began looking at this last week, verses 9 and 10, now verses 11 and 12 for us this morning. And just from the outset, a simple statement that I hope you remember, church family, God is cares about your needs God our father we saw that emphasis last week on God as our father a loving good kind benevolent father God absolutely cares about your needs God all throughout scripture shows himself as a good kind compassionate caring father who really does have concern when it comes to the needs of His people. All throughout Scripture, when God's people have needed life-giving, life-sustaining provision, God has always provided. Manna from heaven. Water from a rock. When Elijah the prophet got hungry, God fed him through the ravens. When Elijah wanted to die, God gave him food and water. When thousands of hungry people who had been listening for a really long time to Jesus on the hillside, when they got hungry, Jesus took bread and fish and fed them. When the early church in the book of Acts, when they were poor, and when they were destitute, when they were persecuted, God provided through one another. God provided through other churches for their needs. When in the 1800s, George Mueller of England, when he started and oversaw the orphanage, the children's home there, He relied on God time after time after time to meet the need, never asking for money, simply trusting God, and every single time God provided. What about in your life? What about the countless maybe times when there just wasn't any fill in the blank and God provided? God was faithful to you. Bills were due and there was no money to pay it. And yet, somehow, God provided the money. When there wasn't that, again, fill in the blank for you, and God, out of His abundant care and faithfulness, provided for you His child. God cares about the needs of of His people. And because God cares about the needs of His people, we should then be those who delight to go to God in prayer asking Him to provide for our needs. And in fact, that is the instruction before us in verses 11 and 12 this morning. Right again in the middle 
of this model prayer. Last week in verses 9 and 10, we saw that as we approach God in prayer, that the posture, that the position of our heart ought to be one of humility that seeks to glorify God in our prayer. Even before we come to God with our needs, our requests, our petitions, we want to posture our hearts so that in our prayer, no matter what we're asking for, no matter what the need is, that in our prayer we are making much of God's great name. Once we do that, once we acknowledge God's greatness, then Jesus teaches us in verses 11 and 12 that we should pray to God regarding our needs. Now, we've already seen earlier in the passage, in verse 8, that God already knows what we need before we ask Him. And still though, here in verses 11 and 12, God intends that we still ask. God provides the needs for His people. And so often, that provision comes in response to our prayer. Can God provide without us asking? Yes. Does God sometimes provide without our asking? Yes. However, the normal way in which God provides is in response to the prayers of His people. We see this so often throughout Scripture. People pray and God responds. They ask and God provides. That's a reality that we know to be true. Here's another reality in Scripture that we also know to be true in James chapter 4 and verse 2 that sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. God delights when you come to Him. God delights when you come to Him over and over and over again. God doesn't get exhausted by your continual request. When you come when you humble yourself before Him, when you acknowledge that He alone can provide, God loves that and delights for you to come to Him that way in prayer. So church, as we begin this study of these verses this morning, do you believe that God is a loving Father who wants to provide for you? If so, then pray to Him for your needs. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to give you what you need? Then pray to Him for your needs. Church, do you believe that God really does own the cattle on a thousand hills? That everything is at His disposal and that He has unlimited resources to provide for you? Then pray to Him for your needs. Let me also ask this question though. Are you tempted to believe? Are you tempted to believe that you are sufficient to provide for your own needs? And that praying for your needs is then a pointless exercise? If that's where you are, then hear God's word today, repent of that pride, and then pray to God for your needs. Matthew 6, verses 11 and 12. Read the text with me. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts. We also have forgiven our debtors. Two needs here for which we ask God's provision. Verse 11, our physical needs. Verse 12, our spiritual needs. Let's start in verse 11. First need for which we pray is our physical needs. That familiar refrain in verse 11, short but powerful, give us this day our daily bread. Think about the word give with me for a moment. It's an imperative in the Greek. This is not merely a request. It carries the emphasis more of a directive to God. Now, when you read that, there, there may be something in your soul that just says, wait a minute. In verses 9 and 10, we're reading all this language about God's sovereignty in heaven and how we should hallow and treat His name as holy. We're asking about God's kingdom and God's will to be done. Are we really in a position then in verse 11 to say, hey, God, give me, give us this day our daily bread. Something about that might not sound right in your ears. Maybe if you were teaching, maybe you would have softened that language a bit. Ask of God and see if maybe He will provide. Maybe we would have inserted but that's not what Jesus is teaching here I remember at our former church in Kentucky there was a faithful faithful saint uh, Mr. Ed he'd been teaching Sunday school for forever he'd been a deacon for forever a godly man and I remember the first time I heard Ed pray Wednesday night prayer meeting Ed began to pray and he this is how he began his prayer now God here's what I want you to do and I remember thinking to myself, Ed, I don't, I don't know if you can pray to God that way. I don't know if you can say to God, now, hey, God, here's what I want you to do. And that, that, that's the language. It feels that way a little bit like what Jesus is saying in verse 11 when he teaches us regarding our needs. Go to God and say, give us this day. How do we reckon then with this imperative, God give? Well, in God's covenant relationship with His people, God has promised to provide for His children. And so when we ask God in prayer to give us our daily bread, we are simply asking God to act in accordance with His nature and His promise. This is not a finger-pointing demand at God, but it is a declaration of trust that says, God, I believe that you will provide. God, I believe that you can provide. God, I believe that you have promised to provide. So God, act in accordance with your nature. God, act in accordance with your promised word and give us this day our daily bread. Notice the plural pronouns in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. In these, we see the act of praying not just for ourselves, but we see the act of praying for us, for our, 
for one another in the life of the church. As Christians placed together into the life of the body, we should not neglect to pray for the needs of others. To pray for one another. Church, make it your practice. Make it your practice to regularly pray for the needs of one another in the body. Look again, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. When when Jesus instructs us in verse 11, when we read that language of daily bread, what do we mean here? Well, the use of the word bread does not mean only bread or only food, but it points us to everything that we need. It, It points us to all requests for the sustaining of our lives. We pray, then, in accordance with verse 11, that certainly God would provide our food. That God would provide the water to drink. We pray that God would provide income, a job. We pray to God when the power bill comes due and there is no money to pay it. We pray to God when the car which transports us to and from work, when it breaks down, we pray. Whatever the needs of this life are, we are called here in verse 11 to take those requests to God. There is no need so insignificant that you should keep silent about it. Because God cares. God cares about your needs. That Jesus uses the word bread, though I I would remind us, that he uses the word bread, it's a reminder that we're praying for our life-sustaining needs, not our extravagances. God is bound by covenant to provide for our every need, not our every want. And notice the use of the word daily in verse 11. Give us this day our daily Bread. Well, what about the use of that word? At the heart of asking God for our daily bread, it's a trust in God. A trust in God that He will provide. That we ask God for our daily bread means that we are not anxious or worried about tomorrow's needs. That we ask God to provide our daily bread evidences that we believe Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Look there with me. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, 
which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What is God saying in these verses? What is God saying when He calls us to ask for our daily bread? It means that we're not worried about tomorrow. It means that we're not relying on self. It means that we are trusting in God. That language of daily bread. No doubt many of you maybe in this moment are thinking about the Israelites of old. When they left out of Egypt, you recall, and they made their way into the wilderness. When they got hungry and they began to murmur and complain a bit, God did what for them? He provided manna from heaven. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, do you recall how the manna came? It came every single morning. Every morning when they woke up, they looked outside and there was this stuff on the ground. What is it? Manna. Food. Bread. From heaven. Recall that God told them to go out and only gather what you need for that day. Do not try to gather enough for a couple of days. God then gave an allowance that on the day before the Sabbath when they went out, they were to gather two days' worth on that day, right? Because the Sabbath was the next day. They didn't want to go out and, uh, and, and you know, work and pick up the, uh, the food from the ground. They wanted to rest. And do you recall, though, that there was a moment in the wilderness wandering when they ceased to trust God? They ceased to trust that God would be faithful to provide for their daily bread. So they went out, some of them, and they gathered enough for a couple of days. When they woke up the next morning, the manna stunk. It had rotted. There were maggots in it. God was angry with His people because they did not trust Him for their daily bread. Church, the call here, essentially in verse 11, as we go to God with our request for our physical needs, the question is really this. Do we trust God? Do we trust that God will provide every single time for us? Now, trusting God for your daily bread does not mean that you cannot plan for the future. It just means that you're not going to worry about the future. Trusting God for your daily bread is also not a permission to laziness. It's not a permission to say, well, God's just going to provide. I'll just sit here and it'll fall into my lap. The Israelites still had to get up, go out in the house, and pick up the manna, right? 
Ruth, though provided for through the law, still had to go out to the field of Boaz to glean. It's not a call to laziness. And it's also not a call to worry. Here's the last thing I might would draw our attention to here in verse 11. In our country, which we are so thankful for, in our country of affluence and plenty, it is easy to slip into a place where we begin to believe that we are our own provider. Go to work, put in the hours, I get the pay, and I go buy what we need. Food, transportation, we keep the utilities running in the home. It becomes easy to believe that I am my own provider, and it becomes easy to forget that everything comes from God. It becomes easy to forget James chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Church family, Do you neglect to pray for God's provision because you wrongly believe that you are your own provider? We want to make a habit, certainly, of thanking God for what He has provided. But we also should make a habit of praying this, God, help me not to trust in myself. God, thank You for the job that You have given But God, remind me that every good thing bestowed comes down from the Father of lights. We should pray, God, help me not to be self-reliant. God, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go out into the field to glean. God, I understand that my money, my food, my resources, God, that all of that comes from You. And that if you don't give it, then I don't have it. God, help me to understand and believe that. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said this, so helpful. Listen to this, church. All that we have is from the hand of God's royal bounty. We have nothing but what He gives us out of His storehouse. We cannot have one bit of bread but from God. The devil persuaded our first parents that by disobeying God, they should be as gods. But we may now see what kind of gods we are. That we have not a bit of bread to put in our mouths unless God give it to us. That is a humbling consideration. Pray to God for our physical needs. But then secondly, church, we pray to God for our spiritual needs needs in verse 12 we pray to God for our spiritual needs the request then goes in verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors here in verse 12 we move from prayer for provision for our physical needs to provision for our greatest need In verse 12, we come face to face with our greatest need, which is to be forgiven of our sin. 
Church, never forget that our greatest problem is sin and our greatest need is forgiveness. There will be lots of problems that you will face this week. There will be lots of problems that arise in the course of your life. Some of them will be severe. But church, never forget that our greatest problem is sin and our greatest need is to be forgiven of that sin. And so we pray, verse 12, and forgive us our debts. Now, some might wonder at this point something along the lines of this. Since my sins were forgiven when I believed by faith, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, do I really need to keep asking for forgiveness. Well, it is certainly true that at the moment of your conversion, when you turn from self and sin and you trusted in Christ to be your Savior, yes, your sins were counted as forgiven based upon faith in Christ. And that forgiveness of sins in that moment is so glorious, church, because that forgiveness means that your sins are placed upon Jesus Christ at the cross and that He bears your sin in His body. He becomes a curse for you. He is punished for you. He absorbs God's wrath for you. He bleeds and He dies for you. And in turn... His shed blood covers your sins and you are entirely cleansed and forgiven by God. It is true that God no longer then holds your sins against you because they have been dealt with at the cross. It is true, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, it is still true that we still sin. We must be those who fight against our sin. We must be those who seek to make war against our sin. But we will still sin until the day the Lord takes us home. And while our ongoing sin, it cannot separate us from God. If we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from God. And so while our ongoing sin cannot separate us from God, our ongoing sin will negatively impact our fellowship with God. It will negatively impact our relationship with Him. And so then, when we sin, we are to pray. We are to pray prayers of confession, prayers of repentance, a prayer asking God to forgive the sin. And what is the promise of God? 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, and then verse 9. The promise is what? If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every sin that we commit has a staining effect on our lives. Therefore, we constantly need the daily cleansing forgiveness of God. And when we pray for that forgiveness, God graciously grants it. 
Notice in verse 12 how Jesus refers to our sin. Forgive us our debts. All all throughout Scripture, when we talk about sin, a lot of different words are used. Here is another word that is used regarding our sin. Referred to as a debt that we owe. When we sin against a holy God, when we sin against His holy law, we are now indebted to God. We owe something to Him. And here's what we owe. Scripture tells us that because of our sin, what is owed to God is shed blood. What is owed unto God is death as a payment for that sin. Here's the problem. You and I, now as sinners, cannot pay the debt that we owe to God. God says when you sin, there is to be the shedding of blood. There is to be a sacrifice. It is to be pure, unblemished, spotless sacrifice. And as sinners, beloved, we cannot do that. And now, we are indebted to God. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 shows us so clearly what this looks like. What it looks like to be indebted unto God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Every sin that you and I commit goes into the ledger. And it in bright, flaming red proclaims a debt that we owe. A debt that demands payment. A debt that God in His holiness cannot ignore. That God in His justice cannot sweep under the rug. And it goes into a ledger, if you will. And that certificate proclaiming our debt, it is hostile to us, Colossians 2 says. It declares our guilt. It declares our condemnation. It declares that we are under the wrath of God. But what does God do with that certificate of debt? God takes it and He nails it to the cross. And in that, we are forgiven. In that, our debt is paid. And as believers who have been forgiven, we will seek to pray, to come before God with our greatest need. God, I have sinned. God, I sinned in this way. God, I confess that Your Word says this is sin. God, I am asking 
for your forgiveness. God, I am forgiven in Christ. I want to live as one forgiven in Christ. So God, forgive us our debts. Simply stated, church, we must ask God for forgiveness of our sins. Have you been forgiven? You come to Christ as your Savior and had His blood on the cross cleanse you of your sins. Have you confessed that Christ alone is Savior, that Christ alone is Lord? Church, Christian, are you continually asking for the forgiveness of your sin? It's one of the defining marks of a believer. One of the defining marks of a a believer is not perfection. It's that when you sin, you are confessing repenting and asking God for forgiveness. And then look at the end of verse 12 as we conclude here. Here's another defining mark of a believer that forgiven people, they forgive people. Forgive us our debts as we do what? As we also have forgiven our debtors. There's an assumption here at the end of verse 12. There is something that is just simply understood. It's not up for question or debate. What Jesus clearly understands and what Jesus emphatically intends is that those who have been forgiven, those who have tasted the sweetness of having their sin and their debt nailed to the cross, those people will then freely and gladly forgive those who sin against them. Simply stated, one cannot be born again and not grant forgiveness. If we are in Christ, we will forgive others. One cannot claim to know the tenderness of God and yet remain hard toward others. One cannot receive forgiving mercy from God and hold on to unforgiving bitterness. Forgiven people, they forgive people because they know the greatness of their sin against God. Because they know that there is no sin committed against them that is greater than the sin they have committed against God. And they know of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so, they pray, God, help me to forgive as I have been forgiven. How do we do that? Because I'll I'll tell you, just remind you of something that you already know. Just saying, I forgive you, is not necessarily, sorry guys, is not necessarily a magic word that just poof makes everything all better. Forgiveness is sometimes a hard won process. Because sometimes, the way that you are sinned against is severe. And the cut is deep. And the wound takes a really, really long time to heal. So what does it mean then 
to forgive as we have been forgiven? Well, forgiving others, it means not holding their sin against you. It means not holding that against them. It is releasing them from the debt that they owe. It is canceling the certificate of decree against them. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I I don't think that's even possible, really. I mean, maybe over a really long period of time, you can get to a place where you forget. But forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. Forgiveness is when you remember what they did, how they sinned. Forgiveness in that moment is praying to God and is asking for His Holy Spirit's help to help you keep no record of wrongs. It's praying and asking God to help you to not be angry and bitter. And it's asking God to help you show mercy and tenderness. It's releasing that person from the debt they owe you because you know that the debt they owe to God is infinitely bigger. I think it's also remembering verses 14 and 15. Just look down there. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I think that plays into this as well. If we've truly been forgiven, we will forgive others. We'll remember that my sin against God is greater than their sin against me. If we do not forgive, we give evidence at worst that we've not been forgiven, and at best, we just don't really understand forgiveness. Beloved, we can't escape this. Ephesians 4.32 tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is not an option. John Stott said this, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves we have minimized our own. Church, we can't hold back forgiveness. If we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, then we're not really serious about our request to be forgiven by God. See, we we can't ask for forgiveness on one hand, and in the other hand, be holding on to unforgiveness. If that's the reality, then we're not really serious in our request for God to forgive us our own debts. And when that's the case, we have no expectation that forgiveness from God will actually be granted. Verses 14 and 15 serve as a sober reminder and warning about harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. Church, do you regularly go to God with request for your needs and the needs of others? To not pray for your needs, it's a sign of two things. Neither one of them are good. Number one, it's a sign of not trusting in God. And number two, it's a sign of trusting in self. Our silence is still communicating something to God. 
And it's communicating, God, I don't need you. You can sit this one out. I mean, I know you're the king of the universe and hallowed be your name, but you can just sit this one out. I, I got this one. That's what our silence, our lack of prayer, that's what it communicates. It communicates, God, I am able, I'm wise, I'll take care of this God. So go to God with requests for your needs, your physical needs, and most certainly your spiritual needs. And then, in light of God's greatest gift, forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, church, forgive others. Pour out forgiveness. Let go. Let go of the hurt. Let go of the bitterness. Don't hold on to it. Because God has not held on to your offenses against Him. He took them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. You bear your sin no more. Don't cause others to keep bearing theirs. Forgive freely as you have been freely forgiven. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are a father who loves us and cares about us and desires to meet our needs. God, thank you that you do own the cattle on a thousand hills and that uh, everything is at your disposal and no need that we ever have is too much for you. God, implied in that request to give us our daily bread as a trust in you, God, I pray that your spirit would work into the hearts of the people in this room to help them determine, do they trust you? God, if we are self-reliant in any way, convict us. God, if we just have forgotten because of our affluence, because of living in a land of plenty, if we have forgotten, God, that everything comes from You, then let this morning serve as a gentle reminder, O oh God, that uh, just compels our prayer life, Father, to ask You to provide. God, thank You that You have met, most importantly, our greatest need. God, you have forgiven us of our sins. God, as we are so thankful for that, Lord, would you help us? God, help us to forgive others. And God, we, we just confess, God, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's hard. Because it hurts. Being sinned against, it wounds and it hurts. Sometimes we want to forgive, but we don't even know how to do that. God, show us. Give us soft hearts that are so thankful for your forgiveness, God, that we can't help but grant that to others. God, I, I pray in the hearts of those that are just wounded because of the ways in which they've been sinned against, oh God, that you would bring just healing and, and spiritual strength into that, God. And that they would be able, Father, just to let go, to trust you as they 
freely forgive others as they have been freely forgiven. God, move among us. Help us, O oh God, we pray. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.